and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. Our podcast today is a little different than our usual interview. Today we have two guests in studio, Dr. Gerald Simmons and Dr. Kevin Boy. Both are renowned doctors focused on sleep and airway health for children. Today I'm going to open the mic for them to talk a little bit about why it's so important that the medical side works with the dental side and about possible continuing education opportunities for both. So please welcome Dr. Gerald Simmons and Dr. Kevin Boyd. And I want to thank you, Dr. Simmons and and Dr. Boyd, or Dr. Kev, as it is, uh, for being on the podcast today. And our topic today, uh, obviously, this is a little more widespread than children, but we want to focus a little on pediatric sleep issues and how it relates to airway and the lack of education that we're finding in the medical profession at large. So, Dr. Simmons? Well, thank you for the opportunity to um, be here today. Uh, you know, we have an annual conference, the Sleep Education Consortium, which is trying to address the deficit in healthcare education. You know, most uh, physicians um, and dentists have almost no education on sleep. Uh, on the four years of medical uh, school, only two to four hours are spent teaching medical students anything on sleep physiology or sleep pathology. And yet we spend a third of our life sleeping. So there's a big deficit. And we now know that sleep disorders have a significant impact on other healthcare issues, um, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, Alzheimer's, just so many things. And right. so the consortium functions as a way of bringing all this information in and packaging it so that a healthcare provider that never really received any education can get up to speed and learn uh, uh, pretty you know, quickly how, how important sleep is and, and give them an approach uh, to where they can then implement it into their practice. So today, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Kevin Boyd um, is joining us from his vacation uh, with his family at skiing, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we're fortunate to have him. So we want to be respectful of, of his time. But um, you know, we I I'm I'm a neurologist. I deal with kids and adults. But you know, a lot of these issues with adults, it doesn't start in their adulthood. It's not like someone has sleep apnea that's diagnosed when the person is thirty or forty. It didn't start when they were thirty or forty. We can now trace it back to it started actually when they were born. A lot of the individuals just have deficiencies of the craniofacial anatomy. And we're now becoming more sensitive to what those craniofacial deficiencies are. And um, there are things that can be done to intervene at an early, early age to open up the airway. And a lot of what's been done within orthodontics and in dentistry has really, over the uh, up till now, has been really wrong because we didn't understand what was going on, but there's a trend to try to now improve things. And so I included Dr. Boyd into our uh, sleep education consortium faculty a couple of years ago um, because of what he's really recognized and where his role uh, comes in, in terms of uh, teaching uh, dentists and other healthcare professionals, myofunctional therapists, how to identify early on the deficiencies and what can be done. He teaches things that can be done to open up the airway. So Kevin, thanks for joining us on your vacation. I'm going to pass it over to you to talk for yeah. a 
Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. And thanks for being patient with me. Um, yeah, I think you said it all is um, assessing risk. Risk for what? Well, comorbidities with malocclusion. Well, what is malocclusion? You know, that's the term that our dental profession uses to describe jaws and teeth that don't line up correctly. And at some point, you'll need braces. Well, that's like an ophthalmologist saying, well, if you recognize the early signs of nearsightedness in a four-year-old, boy, you can say, hey, let's be prepared to fix it when they're driving a car, which is ridiculous. When you see the signs of malocclusion in a three-year-old, the jaws and teeth don't line up correctly, it never self-corrects. Hear that again, please. It never self-corrects. And it will always worsen. And it will usually be or become comorbidities with sleep and breathing disorder. You can take that to the bank. It's true. And it's been known for a hundred years. So that said, it doesn't mean we need to treat every three-year-old with a narrow jaw, with a retruded mandible or retruded upper jaw. It means we need to recognize it and bring it to the attention first. Are you ready for this? Not the pediatrician, not the dentist, to the mother. If the child is so lucky to have a mother, there's a lot of kids who have these problems that don't have a mom, that don't have a dad. But let's just say adult caregivers. And if you have, if you're lucky to have the female adult caregiver who has an instinct that's different from what we with a Y chromosome have, we care, we love, but nobody knows a kid like a mom. And so many times when mothers bring their kids to me with sleep and breathing disorders, malocclusion, comorbidity, and I say these things are related, the most common response is, I thought so. I yeah. thought so. And I tell you, if that's one thing that everybody can take away from the SEC conference, we must get to adult caregivers, especially the moms, about the fact that if their child's jaw isn't right for feeding, isn't right for swallowing, isn't right for breathing through the nose while they're awake and asleep, habitually, from birth, we got a problem. Houston, where we will be, we have a problem. I just made that up. <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, so that, that, that's all I got. I, that's all I got. I cannot yeah, wait great. until April. Well, great. So, um, so you sort of uh, look at this conference as being a way to um, fill some of the void that exists in our healthcare education. Yep. And if moms get it, believe me, you get a pissed off mom. Sorry to use the you know vernacular, but angry moms get stuff done. And the rest of our healthcare provider colleagues, they'll get it, it even if, if for fear of losing market share. They're going to get it if moms demand it. So talk a little bit about the, the hands-on portion. I know last time we did the conference, you were part of the faculty that also was uh, in the breakout sessions where we're teaching people yeah. how to do the exams. Real quickly, you look at a face. A face is the front of the airway. And there are certain components that I will discuss. This isn't a, a techniques course, but there's going to be a lot of healthcare providers there that don't treat kids but they treat former kids, they're called adults. And there could be genetic predisposition to the problems that you're trying to solve in the adults. So you might be the first 
uh, healthcare provider to make them aware that their grandkid, great grandkid, niece or nephew, son or daughter, might be being set up for future problems. So what do you do? Well, just look at the kid. Is their mouth open all the time? How often should you breathe through your mouth? As often as you eat with your nose. Just tell them that. If their mouth breathing looks apart, you got a problem. But more specifically, I think don't, uh, during the uh, conference, I think you go over certain measurements that, that should be taken, how to make some of those measurements. Yes. Well, one of them is called the Bogue Index. T.A. Bogue was a physician dentist in the late 19th, early 20th century who limited his dental practice. He didn't even practice medicine. Uh, his dental practice to kids under six years old who had malocclusion and sleep and breathing problems. He said... We need to spread the deciduous arch, that's the language they used back then, for the purpose not of correcting irregularities of the teeth, but to give them nasal respiratory advantage. And there's all kinds of articles, like in the New England Journal of Medicine, before it was called that, in 1910, in the Boston Journal of Surgery and Medicine, E.A. Bogue talked about nasal respiratory advantage from dental facial orthopedic, or, you know, they didn't call it that either. They just called it deciduous maxillary expansion. So I'm bringing this back. It fell out of favor in World War II. We don't know why. It's coming back with a vengeance. You don't have to treat these kids. You need to know how to assess the risk. You don't have to be a dentist to measure the width of their upper second baby molars prior to age six. It should be 24 millimeters plus their age. That's so, okay, but now, so what? We go when we identify these problems on three or four years old, four-year-olds. Can we do anything? Can you do anything about those? You can make the parents aware. And no, you but besides that, are there to... any interventions? That can be, I, I basically, I want to talk about what you, uh, what you do professionally in terms of your population that you're treating. Yes, there are all kinds of things out there. Um, there are... Uh, my, well, first of all, myofunctional therapy, um, nursing and weaning. Um, even before a kid's born, there's things you can do. It's called pregnancy wellness, not just, you know, pregnancy vitamins and not just yoga, but better sleep for moms, better breathing for moms. Right, but when, but when, also, do, you, when do you typically intervene orthodontically? I want 20 teeth. That's about two and a half to three years old. That's in JAMA 1922. That 30 months of age is the ideal time to begin spreading the deciduous arch. But there are obstacles to that. And one of the greatest obstacles is that most orthodontists uh, do not want to treat, they don't even want to look at kids till seven years old and much less treat them till after 10. It doesn't mean they're all not doing that, but that's the majority because their curriculum says, uh, you know, we we don't really teach behavior guidance uh, of, of little kids being fearful in a dental setting because we don't treat them at that age. That's what the implication is. Pediatric dentists, we have to demonstrate extreme, a huge competence in managing anxiety in children and parents that are associated with receiving treatments in a novel healthcare setting like a dental office. We know how to do that. Listen, kids are hardwired to wanna to please their parents and their adult caregivers, especially the moms. If the parents get it, the kids will do it. Best kept secret north of us. So and there's lots why you is can it, do. You, why is it 30 months? Is it because it's it's been long enough that it's it's solid enough? Or no, why not earlier? Two, two and a half, 
No, there's things you can do earlier, but that's okay. when 20 teeth are in. Okay. Got Usually it. by two and a half or three years old, kids have 20 teeth and you can fit an expander in there. But before that, you can do things like froggy mouth, mile munchie, uh, infant trainers, uh, healthy start, uh, just malfunctional, uh, just by talking to your child and preparing them for something that's going to be fun. You know, that is a form of treatment. You, you help the parents understand this is in the best long and short-term health interest of their child. There's evidence now that suggests that children who have good self-control, which was associated with good sleep and breathing before 11 years old, will live longer than kids who don't before 11 years old. Validated metrics were taken on 1,037 babies born in 1973 in Dunedin, New Zealand, and have been followed since for over 50 years. I know that because my 1973 high school reunion is coming up. 50 years, and a thousand of these kids, now adults, are being followed. And those that demonstrated good self-control before the age of 11, they manage wealth better. There's less criminal and addictive behaviors. They're more resistant to chronic disease, and they look 10 years younger. If you just Google Dunedin study self-control, you will find a myriad of, of information concerning this. Uh, expanding a kid and getting them to breathe optimally, meaning through their nose habitually during sleep and wakefulness, this portends that they will live longer. Their height, they're, they'll probably live to be 100. Can't promise that, but minimize risk if you get them sleep and breathing well. Uh, and they're just going to have a better quality of life. And, and there's loads of research already in the public domain in the scientific body that says just maxillary expansion alone will improve a kid's quality of life, uh, much better systemic health. And it now from the group from Stanford, Audrey Yoon and company have shown that when you do transverse expansion on a sagittally de uh, transverse deficient child with or without a crossbite, you can increase the nasal pharyngeal corridor. You can help shrink the adenoids, normalize the lymph tissue. Um, it's published in the journal Sleep 2021. Uh, so anyway, so much to be optimistic about. And that's what I tell parents. I'm not promising you. I'm the dental. I'm going to solve the malocclusion to the best of my ability. And I am going to give you optimism that your child will uh, benefit from this. Not just from a better looking smile. Oh, they'll get that. Even though they'll need Invisalign someday for their adult teeth. Uh, this is something we do in early childhood, just like correcting nearsightedness. You don't let it go till they're driving a car. Don't let a non-self-correcting malocclusion go until they have more permanent teeth. That so is medically indefensible. So you sort of saying it's not really about the teeth, but it's about the cranial facial structure. And right. so just because the adult teeth aren't in, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do orthodontics because you could change the skull, the skeletal anatomy even when the baby teeth are there yes it's 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 the field where the teeth grow it, you know the field being the alveolar bone and the apical base of the alveolar bone that needs to be shaped early that needs to be optimized early mother nature used to do it for us Three hundred thousand years of anatomically modern human existence without malocclusion go figure 
been three or four hundred years ago. Here we go. That is not genetic. The genome takes thousands of generations to incorporate a mutation. This is something that every child born has potential for optimal occlusion of the craniofacial and interconnected respiratory complexes. This is this is really becoming common knowledge, uh, but not enough. Not enough so. Uh, so looking forward to seeing everyone in Houston. Got lots of information, lots of case studies to show evidence uh, of, of you know what I'm talking about here. Great. So, well, listen, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're with your family skiing, and so I want you to get out back out on the slopes. I really appreciate that you uh, were able to connect with us so we can uh, get the word out there. Yeah. I'm honored to be part of your faculty, you guys. Uh, it's all you. good. All right. See you around like a donut. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Well, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, I think having Dr. Boyd as part of the faculty, clearly you can see, clearly you can see he has a lot of energy um, and, <laughs> and a lot passion. of passion, a lot of passion mm -hmm. for Absolutely. what he does. But he's leading the pack. I mean, he's really um, uh, helping to uh, expand the awareness of uh, what can be done in the pediatric population. And so um, it's uh, really a, a great thing. But you know, there's other faculty members. We cover so many things in this conference. Uh, we talk about um, uh, surgical interventions, uh, different things that can be done from an ENT standpoint to open up the airway. Um, we'll talk about Inspire, the newest, you know, mm -hmm. one of the newer right. uh, methods of treating obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and also talk about uh, uh, frenulum release, the tongue tie, and that uh, things can be done surgically along those lines, and uh, and maxillofacial surgery. Um, you know, having mandibular uh, maxillary mandibular osteotomies, bringing the face forward. And there's some new mm -hmm. techniques. Uh, Doctor Alfie's going to be um, presenting about some new uh, methods where the, the time it takes to do the surgery has been drastically reduced, uh, and the outcomes have really um, improved with some of the newer methods to do these uh, more extensive surgical interventions, which as time goes on, these are gonna be done more commonly, but that's to change the structure. So for the individual where you don't catch it in their infancy and then now they're an adult, there are certain things that can be done surgically to try to open up the airway. And another important thing is we're not just talking about the airway, we're gonna be talking about other types of sleep disorders, narcolepsy, okay. insomnia, restless leg syndrome, you know, if someone is a dentist and then they're going to start talking about sleep disorders to their patients, they're opening up a can of worms. And there's all different kinds of things that are going to become uh, apparent. And the dentist needs to know uh, something what, about what these conditions. Mm -hmm. right. not, uh, not because they're going to treat it, but they're, they're sensitive enough and they're going to get the patient locked in or linked into a, a, a physician that can handle these other kinds of medical problems. Mm -hmm. um, but it also strengthens the credibility that the patient has, the, that the dentist has with the patient when the dentist seems to be aware and have some understanding of uh, these other sleep-related conditions. And, you know, you, you can't go into doing, in dealing with sleep with a just a, a tunnel vision saying this is the only thing. It's all, you know, it's all airway. Every sleep problem is an airway problem. And the way to treat it is with an oral appliance. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's not correct. So the dentist by coming to this conference is going to learn 
along with physicians in the same group. I was about to say, it's not just dentists because this is the, one of the things the conference is doing. It, it is a holistic approach because that's one of the things we're rallying for, especially with, with pediatrics. It's You've got myofunctional therapists that are going to be there, speech pathologists, dentists, physicians. I mean, it's it's not just dentists that should be attending and learning, right? Right. It's about collaboration. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, we work, we're working with the AAPMD, American Academy of Physiologic Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, they're integrally involved with this conference. Um, and their main uh, theme and mission uh, is uh, collaboration cures. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's really when I started the uh, Sleep Education Consortium uh, uh, 19 years ago, that was really the idea that we want to collaborate. And I was getting uh, chastised by a lot of my physician colleagues and said, you know, why are you trying to enable the dentist to go out there to do all these things that, you know, on their own and, and um, uh, you know, do inappropriate things. I go, no, no, that's not the concept here. The concept here right. is to get to, these dentists want to get involved and I'm trying to give them proper knowledge. So they do it correctly. And, what does a dentist do? They look at the mouth, right? Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of the airway. And so right. one of their patients, are, so imagine if they start screening for sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realized years ago that the dentists can be great, um, uh, a great group to collaborate with to help screen for sleep apnea because they're looking in the mouth. Of it's that. the first line of defense, yeah. Yeah, and if they knew what they were looking at, and they can understand how certain features are going to increase the uh, likelihood of, of obstructive breathing during sleep, then they're going to start referring these patients on to get proper treatment mm-hmm. um, or they'll in, implement it on their own. But really, if they're going to do that, my position is that they should do it in conjunction with a physician because of all the comorbidities involved. And it should be really a physician identifying the um, efficacy of treatment because uh, it's not just wearing a, an appliance and it's not just about wearing a CPAP mask. It's not just about keeping the oxygen level from dropping. It's about mm-hmm. improving overall quality of sleep. Overall health. Mm-hmm. But you know, years ago when I was on faculty at UCLA, I submitted a grant to the NIH, uh, one of these sleep education grants, uh, submitted it from uh, UCLA and about a third to a half of the grant was focused on educating dentists on sleep disorders. And half the reviewers thought it was a great idea. They thought I was was a genius. The other half of the reviewers thought I was a misguided physician. And uh, I really needed to spend more time focusing just on teaching physicians. Well, here we are now. This was like in 1996, right? So here we are years later, almost, you know, where are we with all this? You know, right now, sleep dentistry is in vogue, and mm-hmm. um, and to the point where the ADA has now taken on as a, a statement saying that all dentists should be screening for uh, sleep apnea. So, it's music to my ears because I've been saying this for my entire professional career. Really, mm-hmm. that we need to work collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. And you have available for people, a, a free 
sleep questionnaire, correct? Yes. So um, if go to the webpage for the Sleep Education Consortium, my practice, which is Comprehensive Sleep Medicine Associates, we've been using a one-page uh, sleep questionnaire for you know, 20 years. And um, so... Um, uh, and it's really a good overview of, for taking a sleep history. Well, basically, we gave this to the Sleep Education Consortium so they could put it out there. And someone could download that questionnaire um, and start incorporating it to the practice. But coming to the consortium is going to help them understand how to deal with those responses that a patient is going to fill out on there. Because there are questions about unusual behaviors during sleep, parasomnias. You know, so if someone starts kicking and yelling and screaming in their sleep, what is that? Could it be REM behavior disorder? Is it part of a post-traumatic stress disorder? Is it uh, part of nocturnal seizures? Um, okay. So, you know, it, it, again, it's not all breathing. But if someone has uh, uncomfortable sensations in their legs when they're lying in bed still, I mean, that's a question in there that pertains to restless leg syndrome. Okay. And so, yeah, the questionnaire, it's available for people to go to the webpage, download, look at it incorporate it into your practice, come to the consortium and learn more about it. Yep. And, and we'll put a link to both because there are there's two sides. So for the dental track, I'll include the link for that. And then there's one for the physicians and their mm-hmm. staff. So um, listeners can take either either one. Um, and just, you know, real fast, in your opinion, I mean, how have we missed this? How is how is the education so far off on this? Well, you know, a lot of it's based on uh, the technology and the development of, you know, like when did we really start understanding more about sleep? And it's as our technology developed. So when we had like an EEG, when we started measuring brain waves, mm-hmm. you know, they started realizing that when you're asleep, you know, your brain waves have certain characteristics that are different than when you're awake. And then looking at other physiologic um aspects and then REM sleep was recognized, you know, and and so basically in the 1960s is really when a lot of the basic physiology was um, being uh, identified and realizing that sleep is divided up into different stages. But then it's a matter of tying that in with respiration and then the identification of obstructive sleep apnea. And then, so once it was being identified, then what can you do about it? Well, then CPAP was developed, uh, continuous positive airway pressure, which could make a drastic improvement in in treating patients with um, obstructive sleep apnea. So, but we basically, um, we've been uh, unable to really assess the sleeping process until relatively speaking more recently, okay? okay? And as our technology has developed, our understanding has developed, and now it's a matter of getting the education out there. And in a medical school environment, there's so much competition for um, educational real estate, if you will. You know, there's only a certain amount of time and there's everyone, all the faculty, they want to get their topic into the curriculum. And so, you know, you've got Nobel Prize winners that are you know, people that are really passionate about their very narrow area and they want to lecture on it. And um, it's hard to get things incorporated into the um, into the uh, curriculum. And if you look at epidemiology and say, well, what are the most common problems? I mean, insomnia mm-hmm. or excessive daytime sleepiness. I mean, those conditions affect about a third of our society will have some degree of excessive sleepiness 
or difficulties with their sleep, right? right. And if you've got a third of society, why isn't this taking up more time? Why isn't this given more time in our medical education? And that's because right. we don't necessarily develop the education curriculum based on the epidemiology. And, and so, uh, but it needs to take more of that. Even nutrition, we talk about how there's such a lack of education on nutrition in medical schools, um, but yet everyone eats. And right. so, um, it's, so it's hard to change the curriculum. And until we change the um, educational curriculum, physicians aren't going to know. So if you have a patient that's all excited, they think they have a condition, they're learning about something, they watch a podcast, they go right to their physician and they try to get validation of this concept. And the and physician- they don't know. Going to say, oh no, you know, uh, it, yeah, don't worry. Or that happens with dentists a lot of times. The dentist is going to take a course, be all excited about all the sleep stuff that they've learned, and they probably know more than at that point than a lot of physicians. So they're going to tell their patient, "I think you have X, Y, and Z." And right. patients go to an ENT or a physician, and then they don't know. Right, and the and the physician's going to totally discredit uh, what um, the dentist had just uh, said to that patients. So then, so it's, it's a problem. And that's why I think for my, you know, what can I do to contribute uh, part of the solution? And that's by enhancing the education of the healthcare system, because now I was fortunate enough to, um, to do a fellowship. After I did my neurology training, I did a fellowship at sleep at Stanford University, top rated place, but this was back in 1991, where sleep was, mm-hmm. when I, I was the first uh, neurology resident that finished the program at Washington University, um, that went on to do a fellowship in sleep medicine. And I remember telling most of my colleagues, you know, that I was going to uh, go and, and um, this was actually 1990 when I finished my residency, when I told them I was going to do a fellowship in sleep, a lot of them looked at me like sleep. What are you? <laughs> Why? And, I don't know. Maybe, and I, I mean, I had a sort of a vision recognize, you know, I realized this is an upcoming area because I saw the physiology, the way it all interrelated. And it was uh, fascinating to me, but um, but when I was doing my fellowship, I learned certain things. I said, well, like, why didn't I learn these things earlier? They're not that conceptually difficult to understand. Right. And yet I see the impact that it's having on patients' lives. This should be part of the regular curriculum. And it's not. So right. I'm no longer on a teaching faculty in a teaching institution. I used to be on faculty at UCLA, but then moved on into private practice, but still like to teach and help spread the this education and I'm really happy to what's evolved with the sleep education consortium and I have a great panel of, of other clinicians uh, working with me to educate and uh, hope people can attend and gain more knowledge and it will definitely impact your practice. Absolutely. And so again the dates are April 27th, 28th, 29th. For the dentists, yep. Mm-hmm. And for the physicians, it's the 28th and 29th of April. Correct. And the reason for the difference is the first day is focused specifically for the dentist. Um, who uh, uh, we talk about appliances. They're, uh, they're going to the dentist is going to get a chance to work with appliances. We go over the oral exam. Some of the things that Kevin was talking about. Uh, they learn about how to do digital scanning. Uh, that's okay. a big area now to take a, a scan of the, uh, um, instead of doing the impressions the way they used to in the molds, now that it's done digitally. So these are parts of a, the breakout session and um, okay. learning the importance of making a morning repositioner. Any 
patient's going to be on a mandibular advancing dental appliance in the morning should be in a morning reposition or to bring the job back to help um, uh, uh, prevent some of the side effects that can occur from mandibular advancement. But we even present uh, an appliance. Dr. Yosefian is going to talk about an appliance that brings a jaw forward, the mandible forward, without pulling it. It stimulates the jaw forward by how it functions um, the apnodent. It's interesting. So, you know, there's a lot covered. Lot cover. uh, mm -hmm. and, and even overlap of other conditions, Dr. Andrew Maxwell, he's a pediatric cardiologist in California that mm -hmm. is really um, a, a, a thought leader in the relationship between POTS uh, disorder, you know, which is uh, autonomic dysfunction, um, connective tissue disorder, Ehlers-Danios, a mast cell disorder, and how this interrelates with obstructive breathing and even narcolepsy. And there's the, all these patients that have these chronic debilitating conditions, and they're so hard to treat. And he's really come up with ways of identifying and, and looking at the progression of this pathology. And um, I reached out to him a couple of years ago about participating in this conference because I was seeing these patients and I was, you know, recognizes there's some interrelationship between these different conditions because I'm seeing it over and over again. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, you know, I came across his he lecture it. mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, you've got to participate. And, and some of these patients I was getting from a Dr. Cheng Ron, uh, who is also going to be giving a talk uh, at a conference because he sees a lot of patients with uh, you know, chronic illness that are being missed elsewhere. And, and he's going to be talking about actually using EEG, quantitative EEG, as a way of assessing for uh, hypersomnolence and markers of, of, of sleep um, deficiencies that are not necessarily been put into standard practice today, but are good methods of identifying uh, cerebral dysfunction that can occur from sleep disturbances. And we're also going to talk about a little bit overlap about sleep problems and leading to Alzheimer's and, and also COVID-19 and the impact it's had on sleep. So these are some of the other topics that will be covered at the conference. And I know this conference is specific for clinicians, right? From, from both sides. But for parents, just as a takeaway that we could leave for them, um, how can a parent identify a potential sleep issue in their child so that they know to go see an airway physician or dentist? Well, you know, does the child have difficulty falling asleep at the beginning of the night? Okay. And then okay. once they're asleep, are they sleeping comfortably? Or are they tossing, turning all night long? Are they mouth breathing? Are they frequently drooling on the pillow? Can they hear them grinding or clenching their teeth? Do they seem congested? Mm. Are they waking up repetitively during the night? Are they kicking the sheets off the bed? Are they hard to sleep with in the bed because of how much they're moving around? Are they difficult to wake up in the morning? You know, And then once awake, are they calm and relaxed? Or are they bouncing off the wall all day long? You know, is the child hyperactive? Right. Then you put the child in a car, you strip them in the seatbelt and the car seat, then you drive and boom, they're out. They're asleep. They're hyper, mm -hmm. hyper, hyper, or they're out. One extreme or the other, right? And that hyperactivity could be a way of, of overcoming the excessive sleepiness that they're carrying around. So there's, um, you know, a, uh, a number of uh, things. And so, so uh, from a parent, you just want to basically see, you know, if your child goes to bed easily, if it's easy to sort of standardize their schedule and they sleep through the night um, and they wake up easily and they seem to be sitting quietly during the day and, you know, they're not mouth breathing, 
um, th- th- there's not a problem. Yeah. But, but otherwise, it's, otherwise, it's worth checking out. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So for all of our dental listeners, um, it's dentalsleepconference.com. And for everyone else, it is medicalsleepconference.com. And we'll put a link in the show notes. So, and, and I appreciate you and Dr. Boyd being on. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, uh, CAF is a great organization. It's in its infancy and it really focusing in on, uh, you know, children's uh, you know, airways and, uh, you know, children's airway first foundation, mm-hmm. but also uh, some of the aspects of, you know, identifying right at birth and, you know, what kind of, I know that one of the missions is to try to implement some uh, maybe future uh, mandate where the, uh, all uh, neonates universal are screening be, are going to be screened properly mm-hmm. for having deficiencies of their airway, which may be most apparent by difficulties with feeding, you know, and and you know issues with breath breastfeeding mm-hmm. go hand in hand with these airway issues, right? And, uh, it's now starting to be recognized, and that'll be covered more at the conference as well. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, and have a nice day, and. Uh, Thanks again to today's guests, Dr. Gerald Simmons and Dr. Kevin Boyd, for sharing their medical insight and information on the upcoming SEC Dental and Medical Sleep Conference. And thanks to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Parents can also join us via our Facebook support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. The CAF YouTube channel has a variety of original video content as well as video recordings and excerpts from selected Airway First podcast episodes. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working hard to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.